0: Galatians, the third chapter, verses thirteen and fourteen. Galatians three, thirteen and fourteen, and our subject, Godly Rule. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. For more than a year now we have been analyzing the doctrine of salvation from various perspectives and in its various process. And within the next few weeks we shall conclude this study. One of the things that we have seen is that salvation does mean the restoration of man into his creation mandate to exercise dominion to subdue the earth under God and to develop the implications of God's word in every domain. In other words, it calls for godly rule. When we go back to the 17th century, we find that the principle of godly rule was accepted throughout Christendom. It was accepted in Catholic countries. It was accepted in Protestant countries. The basic division was, how was godly rule to be implemented? In England, for example, there were, among the various factions, a common agreement that man had been called by God to exercise godly rule. The difference between the Our church party, the Puritans, the independents of various clans, was how, how shall Christ's rule be established? Some held that a godly prince was to institute it, and such people were predominantly monarchists. Others held that this was the duty of godly bishops. These men were Anglo-Catholics, and on the continent, the Catholic Party held to a similar opinion. Others held, such as many of the Puritans, that it was a godly people whose responsibility it was to usher in godly rule. While still another group held that it was a godly parliament, it was to institute godly rules. One small group of reformed believers, while accepting many of these things, dissented at a critical point. They pointed out that the common assumption of all parties was that all England was Christian. Just as on the continent, the same assumption was made in each country that everyone was a Christian. The only question was, which theology would put them into action best? How were they going to be disciplined and organized? Into bringing about godly rule. But one small group of reformed men said this whole policy has a serious weakness. It assumes that all our Christians, and that our problem is simply how is this to be done? We agree that the question how is a very important one. But before that, we need to recognize we are dealing with a vast number of unconverted people who are nominally in the church, whatever the church is. Thus, they said, the basic need is for conversion. It turned out that these people were right. And whether in Protestant or Catholic countries, these various attempts to institute godly rule collapsed, collapsed drastically. When Cromwell gained power, he very quickly realized, for example, as he dealt with the situation in England, that the Puritans whom he represented were a very small group. Scholars who have analyzed the Jordan movement say that it was never more than 4% of the population.
1: The need, therefore,
0: was for something more than organization. Once they were in power, it was for conversion. And here is where they missed the boat. After the collapse of this effort, In every country to establish godly rule. What happened throughout Europe was that there was a retreat from this hope of godly rule. And religiously it led to pietism, to mysticism, and to quietism in various forms. All of them a retreat from a calling to conquer the world and as the people of God to reign over us. A retreat from this to an emphasis on salvation as self-preservation. An emphasis on personal salvation and personal morality. The outer world was surrendered for an emphasis on the inner world. That was an element of progress in all of this because they recognized the overwhelming need for conversion. And within a century, the movement of Whitfield and Wesley arose to correct that and other movements elsewhere on the continent. Thus, there was progress. There was a difference, for example, as they dealt with unbelief. Earlier, the state, often supported by the church, reacted to the very dangerous movement, the witchcraft movement, which involved human sacrifice and many other things, with fadish approaches, prosecute and execute. Now, the Attitude was, work to convert them. So, there was some real advance. However, the emphasis on conversion and on salvation as self-preservation from judgment and from the wrath of God meant that while it was right as far as the ABCs were concerned, it was merely a negative emphasis now the Christian man was no longer seen as the destined Lord of all the earth, but rather as a man who had found safety and insurance against a coming storm. As a result, very quickly, at the same time that the hope and godly rule was abandoned, a totally different type of state came into being. Now, whether we agree with Vows the first or not, or James the first in England, or Queen Elizabeth, or Cromwell, what we must recognize with these men and others on the continent was that their idea of rule was religious and Christian according to their theology. Philip II the of Spain is an easy man to criticize and has been very extensively criticized a great deal of his stiff and unyielding ways led to the bankruptcy and the collapse of the tremendous Spanish power in Europe there is no question that Philip was a very devout Catholic saw his calling as godly ruler when he built his palace The heart of it was a chapel and a monastery for a particular group of monks. And the essence of his approach was to be guided religiously by these spiritual leaders. James I of England saw himself as a theologian. Henry VIII did too in spite of his sin. Henry VIII wrote theological writing. And this was true of many monarchs over the face of war. But suddenly the situation changed. Charles II was totally cynical. In France, Louis XIV made his bedroom the center of the shop. Everywhere one saw a de-Christianization of public and private life. The course that was begun by Charles II and by Louis XIV and by the degenerate heirs of Philip in Spain Led directly to the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. The attempt to abolish Christianity. To separate entirely from life. In the 17th century, one Englishman saw this clearly, and he said, religion turned into statism to assume true atheism. On every form of politics today, it is the fallen man rather than the Christian man who seeks to conquer the whole world. Of course, this has been the drive of fallen man since the Garden of Eden, since he submitted to the temptation of Satan to be his own God, to have his own apostate creation mandate. But since the beginning of the... 18th century and from about 1660 in the previous century there has been this growing divorce between the idea of salvation and godly rule which did not exist previously and as a result the ungodly have been less and less opposed until today there is virtually no opposition to them in their attempts to conquer the world in terms of the presuppositions of fallen man. Meanwhile, the church has had many revivals, but these revivals have only, with exceptions like this, aggravated the retreat of the church from its fall and have led to a progressive, e-formation of the world and a denial of the real meaning of conversion. One of the first heresies that arose in the latter part of the seventeenth century was quietism. Some time ago we dealt with the Moravian aspect which so heavily influenced Protestant circles. At the same time, in traffic circles, Molino's very heavily influenced the entire church in the direction of quietism. For the quietist, conversion became essentially union with God, a mystical union. This meant that there was no need for Christ. The man opposed God directly. It meant, moreover, that the kingdom of Christ was seen as an earlier and inferior dispensation, and the reign of the Spirit as the later and perfect dispensation. It meant also that for the quietest, external things were despised for internal things. And to be concerned with these things of this world was a mark of being unspiritual. Man withdrew from the world instead of conquering it. This meant also an indifference in morality and the moral option. To a philosophy of surrender. Catholic theologians of the day condemned Molinos as an antinomian, and rightly so. But the damage was done. The thinking of Molinos saturated the popular piety of the church. Just as on the Protestant side, the quietist movement took over and created what was regarded as true evangelical piety. The quietist movement is still very, very much with us in varying forms. Let me cite two illustrations of specific cases which demonstrate the quietist movement, which really is an immoralism. In one case, a man who goes to a fairly evangelical church, very active in it, to believe the Bible from cover to cover and yet is consistently, regularly, flagrantly guilty of adultery and fornication. And his attitude towards it is basically one of unconcern. He will quit, he says, when the Holy Spirit leads him to drop it and makes it impossible for him to continue. Well, what is he doing meanwhile? Well, he's praying that the Holy Spirit will take the desire entirely out of his heart. My God, he doesn't feel that there's any necessity for him to do anything. A similar example, a man who's drinking uh, is making him an alcoholic. In fact, he's a prophet who prophesied his wife. He will admit that He is in danger of becoming an alcoholic, but he makes no effort to quit He says he is praying that the Lord takes the desire for drink out of his heart. Now, this is politism. It is a denial of the reality of the individual will, and it is practical immoralism. In the 1820s, when revivalism became very commonplace in America, the revivalists of the day were essentially immoralists because of their quietist presuppositions.
1: They strongly
0: opposed Christian schools and catechism teaching, and were in part responsible for the rise of state schools. Their attitude was that discipline and training were not good. No one could work to become disciplined all, they should do nothing until the Holy Spirit, like a thunderbolt, struck them and changed them. Salvation thus became essentially a subjective experience, not the objective work of God in Christ. Now, this meant that the doctrine which in the late Middle Ages worked to destroy the medieval church now became the property of the evangelical movement. And the Protestants and Catholics had now a common doctrine. They differed about the structure of the church. But essentially, they today had a common doctrine of salvation. As one scholar has said, analyzing the what happened in the late Middle Ages when the church began to collapse, and I quote, the church did not abandon such biblical expressions as justification and salvation by grace. The words of Paul were still used freely by the theologians as they are today that the great, great Pauline words, justification, grace, etc., had evolved a new meaning altogether. Justification had lost its objective, forensic meaning. Forensic means having to do with the law and a court of law.
1: Instead of meaning what
0: God did outside of man in pronouncing him righteous. It came to mean God's renewing, sanctifying act in man's own heart. Instead of justifying grace, meaning the disposition of mercy and favor in God's heart, grace had come to mean a God-given quality that adorns the human soul. The contrast between the medieval and the Reformation views may be summarized as follows. Medieval, justified by God's work of grace in the heart, Reformation, justified by God's work of grace in Christ. Medieval, justified by Christ's work in our hearts. Reformation, justified by Christ's work outside of our heart. that is, on the cross. In other words, what happened was that there was a confusion between the results of justification and justification. And, of course, of modern Protestantism is very definitely given to the same view of justification. This is why both the modernists and the evangelicals on both Catholic and Protestant sides are increasingly very close. In T73, they're cooperating. There's no real difference between them except in their view of the structure of the church. When salvation becomes essentially a subjective experience, it means that justification and sanctification have become confused. A man's response to salvation is confused with salvation itself, which is God's work. It means, moreover, that God's sovereignty in salvation is replaced by man's decision, Instead of God's decree and grace, which Paul says in Ephesians 1, 6, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. He hath man's desire whereby man says, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But what if man accepts, man can take exception to. And therefore there is an implicit antinomianism in our many nations,
1: a hostility
0: to predestination, a hostility to the doctrine of the security of the saints, and so on. Man's will becomes impervious to God's will. Man is sovereign. When there is no sovereign God and no sovereign law, there is no total mandate to conquer everything in the name of Christ the King. Man now concludes in terms of the new Christianity, as it can be called that. To be a Christian with respect to his inner life and the world to come. But in education, he can believe in the public schools. In politics, he can be a humanist. In art, a relativist; In morality, situation ethics, and so on. It is a matter of choice. From a God-centered religion, we have moved. To a man set at one. Our scripture text gives us very, very plainly the difference, and the emphasis on God's justification, whereby we are converted, and godly rule. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. We are all under the curse of the law, that is, under the death penalty for sin. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Our salvation is the work totally of God in Christ. Christ who was sinless became a curse for us. And the curse of our fall was laid upon him. Christ redeemed us, St. Paul makes clear. Without any action on our part, our sanctification requires our action. Our justification is entirely Christ's work. In this passage, St. Paul does not even mention our faith which is our response, which is the fruit of God's justification, that he only mentions Christ's His act. The purpose of this salvation, of this sovereign act, was to bring upon us the blessing of Abraham, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Now, this is a remarkable statement. The passages of Genesis that deal with the blessing of Abraham are numerous. It is a promise of land, of prosperity, and of power, (coughs) of the possession of the earth by the spiritual heirs of Abraham and of great blessing even to his blood area. The blessing of Abraham means that we share in Abraham's blessing. God declared to Abraham that he will bless them that bless Abraham, and he will curse them that curse Abraham. This is a part of the blessing of Abraham that comes to Uh, us through Christ. If men are blessed and cursed by God as they blessed and cursed Abraham, this then is true for us. God reacts with the same intense closeness to us. Uh, People are his friends and enemies insofar as they are ours as we serve God and as we work to further his rule. Just the blessing of, the, of Abraham is the possession of all the earth, that he might receive the promise of the Spirit through Satan. Not by blood descent, but by spiritual heirs through Satan. Self-salvation, as St. Paul here speaks of it, is very different from self-preservation. It is justification. It is regeneration. It is inheritance. It is conquest. The 17th century Christian believed in godly rule despite various defects in his position. Today the, the churches believe in ungodly surrender. The godly must be trained for conquest and rule.
1: And as we look
0: at the past, we must learn from their shortcomings. And we must recognize indeed that they had their defects, but ours is recent. And we must indeed emphasize conversion. To converse and to prepare the generation around us for godly rule, because we have been redeemed by Christ from the curse of the law, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. This is our call. This is the purpose of our salvation. Let us pray. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we shall see that in Jesus Christ Thou hast redeemed us. That. that Thou hast declared that the blessing of Abraham shall come upon all the world through us. And Thou hast, O so Lord by Thy grace and mercy that we may convert and prepare this generation. For thy service and for the blessings of Abraham our Father. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now? First of all with the question. With regard to salvation, grace is not something that the individual develops or gains. It is not an infused quality. Sovereign saving grace is simply God's act on the cross whereby we have been redeemed. Now, grace is then imparted to us, indeed. And our lives manifest the But that is not to be confused with the act of justification. And this is where the confusion is Justification is a legal act. Our salvation is a legal act whereby the, the offense was removed. It would be comparable to... This is a very poor illustration, and I recognize it's poverty. But if I owed ten thousand to the bank and could not pay it, and you paid it for me, it would involve nothing on in my part. Now our salvation was that, pure and simple. We were under the death penalty. Christ became a curse for us, and we were redeemed. We were justified. Then, in his sovereign grace and mercy, he also regenerated us so that we become converted. So we cannot confuse this with justification. When we do, you see we make salvation somehow man's act. In conversion, we respond to God's regenerating grace in our hearts. But justification is prior to all of this. And then sanctification is our growth in terms of the, of the renewed man, the new man in us. So it's more than an infusion of grace, so it's totally different from an infusion of grace. First it is a lukewarm, and then a recreation. It seems like a subtle point. But the, the difference is so important that civilization has swung from one step uh, to another in terms of it. The modern attitude of whether it is in Protestant or Catholic circles is that salvation is essentially an infusion of grace. The of people today very definitely manifest this kind of heresy. This is why there is no difference across those clients today. Yes. 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 Right. It is because we are humanistic that we have to see justification as essentially something we do. And therefore we confuse the effect. Decept- of God's salvation with salvation itself. Salvation, strictly speaking, is justification. It is the fact that Christ, being made curse for us, died upon the cross, and we have been redeemed. We have nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing. Then, because we have been redeemed, we are regenerated by the grace of God. Now, we cannot take the effects of regeneration in our lives and say, oh, this is what saved us. No. The justification is a separate act. It took place before we were even born. We had nothing to do with it. redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made curse for us, for it is written, cursed it is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That is a citation from Deuteronomy, I think the 21st chapter, Wherein well, let's turn to it. Not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is a curse of God. But thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an impurse. In other words, the guilty man and the one who is hung are symbols of guilt, of the curse of God. And here particularly, it says they're not to be left hanging up as was the testimony of some people. They're to be taken down and buried. Because even the sight of evil in the form of an executed evil is is uh, an evil thing. Evil is to be put out of the land in every sense of the term. So Christ becomes the for form the one upon whom all our iniquity is laid. The fullness of the curse of sin is laid upon him. Are there any other questions? central to the establishment of godly rule, and it emphasized more and more the power of the bishop, even above and over the tomb, which very few people realize. The uh, Presbyterian party still emphasized the uh, church and the church authorities, but not the bishop's of course. Whereas the emphasis of the independence, which was a general term to cover what later became Congregationalists and Baptists, was to emphasize the priority of the Congregation. So, there were three differing emphases here. Now, the Presbyterian Party at the time tended to favor Parliament as the means of bringing in godly rule and the independence of godly people. Any other questions? If not, I'd like to remind you that this Thursday we will continue our class on the biblical doctrine of knowledge Thursday night, 8 to 9 p.m. at the Guitar Home. Let us our head now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, bless you and keep you, guide and protect you this day and always. Amen.